I would like you this morning to turn, first of all, to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. And in the passage uh, that we commonly refer to as the Great Commission, verse 18, it says there that Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. I want you to notice one word that occurs four times in this passage. It may not appear to be significant at first, but it's the little word, all. First time it occurs is in verse 18, where the Lord claims to have all authority in both heaven and earth. See that? Second time is in verse 19, where on the basis of that universal authority, he commissions his disciples universally. All the nations, it says, are to be discipled. The third time it occurs is in verse 20, where those discipled individuals are now to be indoctrinated with all things that he has commanded. The fourth occurrence is actually embedded in the word always. The English translation there really covers three Greek words, which are all the days. So as the Holy Spirit gave us this text, we have all authority that becomes our basis for discipling all the nations and insisting that all those who come to Christ obey his words. And this process should go on for all the days, even until the end of the age. Now, those four universals together make up the reservoir in history from which all the streams of Christian testimony have come ever since. Some of those streams have been broad rivers of Christian influence, like the two great awakenings, like the Welsh revival. Some of those streams have been little creeks that are barely visible. In some cases, it's almost like the dry wadis in the desert that rush with water now and then, but then they're completely dry for months at a time. But the fact is that wherever the gospel has gone, and whenever people have responded, it can all be traced back to these words. And we are all here this morning, having come from one of those streams. Now, maybe uh, you've come from another nation. There are many of you here that are from other nations. We pride ourselves on our multiculturalism. Some of those nations are steeped in paganism or Catholicism or Hinduism, and yet the gospel reached you because somebody obeyed the call of the Great Commission. In other words, we have something here 
that is so foundational because every one of us has been a recipient in some way of the impact of these words. But what I want to call to your attention this morning is the fact that within these words, you have the claim of Jesus Christ to be the Lord of all. Now, this is where we ended last time with this passage in which he claims to have authority not only over all the nations on the earth, but over everything that exists in creation, both in heaven and on earth, and authority over every individual's life, no matter what nation they may have come from. Now, there have been many people in history who have ambitiously dreamed of wielding that kind of power. Uh, most of them have attempted to coerce it through violence. Uh, names like Alexander the Great or Genghis Khan or Adolf Hitler come to mind. But what we really need to know is this. What qualifies the Jesus of the Bible to be the Lord of all? including the Lord of my life individually and of all of my possessions and even the Lord of my future? What is it that actually qualifies him above everybody else to be what he claims to be at the conclusion of this book? Well, for four weeks, we've been surveying the book of Matthew and we are now prepared to let this gospel writer unfold to us the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And regardless of what anyone may be convinced about him, everyone has to acknowledge that at the, at the very least, he is the founder of one of the world's greatest religions. Right? If you came in uh, this morning and that's all that you can honestly concede regarding him, at least that is a starting point. That is, that's the bottom rung of the ladder. I mean, no one can deny that he is one of the most influential people in the history of the world. However, he is claiming to be much more than that. And it would not be sufficient to honor him merely as a great leader if indeed his claim is true. So the question that is put before us as we open the first chapter of this gospel in our study is what actually gives this person the credentials to make that kind of claim, that massive claim, that incredible claim. Please turn with me now to the opening of this gospel, chapter 1, where Matthew really answers the question of what qualifies this person to be the Lord of all by beginning with the whole issue of his origin. If you look at the first verse, Matthew writes that this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Messiah, which is what the word Christ meant to the Jew. So you can see here that the first thing to note is that the little word genealogy is the word Genesis. Uh, this is the word that is given as the title to the first book of our Bible. It's a Greek word. It occurs in the Greek version of the Old Testament. It's exactly the same word translated here as genealogy. Genesis, uh, Genesis, of course, means what? 
beginnings. Thank you. Now, Matthew is going to use that word repeatedly in chapters 1 and 2. No other gospel writer does this, so we are looking here at something that is unique to his presentation and message. So what I want to do is begin by surveying that usage, and then we'll come back and see the significance of it. He says, this is the book of the, of the genesis of Jesus the Messiah, and that fact is now communicated, first of all, 39 times in the next 17 verses. Because the verb form of the word Genesis is the word that is translated in the New King James as the word begot, or in the ESV as the father of. Uh, That's simply the verb form of the noun, Genesis. So clearly, in the first section of the book, Matthew is setting before us the ancestral beginning of this individual. His origin. We talk about state of origin football. I'd rather not, but that's what we call it. It's played by men as a women's version. We both lost. That's okay. But they're supposed to find their origin in the state where they were born, which is a little questionable for the people up north, but that's okay. Well, Matthew is talking here about origins. And in this case, it's the ancestral origin of Jesus, the Messiah. Now, look at chapter 1, verse 18. He transitions. Now, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, was different from any other person who's just been named. Right? Of all the other names in the previous verses that work this way, his father begot him. His father originated him. He was the father of so-and-so. But in this case, the origin, and there's that word again, the birth, the genesis of Jesus the Messiah, same Greek word, was as follows, and you can hardly believe then what Matthew writes next. If you look at verse 20, we'll just summarize it. Joseph, who was betrothed to Mary, well, he didn't believe it when he heard it. So an angel came to him and reassured him with these words, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is, and our version reads, conceived, but there's the verb form of that word again, for Genesis, for that which has been begotten in her, that which has been conceived in her, or originated in her, is of the Holy Spirit. So that is the unique distinction between the physical origin of this person and every other person who appears in that genealogy. So Matthew gives us the ancestral origins of Jesus, which answers the question of who he is. But secondly, he gives us the physical origin of this person. That answers the question, how did he come into being? Now look at chapter 2, verse 1. It's going to use the verb form again. Now after Jesus was, and here it is, born. There's the verb of the noun, Genesis again. There it is again. After he was born in Bethlehem of Judea, and then Matthew is going to use that word one more time. It's the last word of verse 4. Herod here, the usurper king, felt threatened. And so he gathered all the chief priests and scribes together, and it says he asked them where the Messiah was to be originated. There it is, translated as born in our version. Where was the genesis of Jesus? 
So all of those English words are proper translations of that one Greek word. You can see that it's being used here by the Holy Spirit to refer to his ancestral lineage, his physical conception through the Holy Spirit, and then his geographical origin or where he was to be born, his state of origin, as it were. I mean, where is he from? Bethlehem in Judea, you see. In other words, you have a term that is used by God to give us the answers regarding the origins of this person who is to be the Lord of all. Ancestrally, physically, and geographically, and that now basically traces out our study for the next few messages. We're going to examine the claims that are written here regarding the origins of this person. Well, now I want to call your attention to the first six verses of the genealogy. And of course, uh, you know, we would never write a book today that we wanted anybody to read and started off giving a list of 41 names. You just wouldn't do it. But this is what the Holy Spirit chooses to do because these names are vital to establishing the claims of this person. Let's read through the list. Uh, even though some of them may be familiar to, uh, to us and some may not. Here's how the gospel begins. The book of the genealogy, the origin of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's an overview of where Matthew is going. Verse 2. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Now here's where it gets quite unfamiliar. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon. Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David, the king. Now, as I said... The real question here concerns the significance of this in laying out the credentials uh, for Jesus of Nazareth to make the claim as Lord of all. That's what we're interested in. So I want to preach to you this morning on the Abrahamic ancestry of Jesus the Messiah. Now, this might initially appear to be a snoozer. Uh, not very interesting or relevant to us, but really nothing could be more foundational. Listen to me. Nothing could be more foundational for having the confidence that when we go out into eternity, the person in whom we put all of our faith on is the right individual. Right? How do we know he has the right to be the Lord of all and the Lord of my life? Well, here, then, is the Abrahamic ancestry of Jesus the Messiah that will help us sort that out. Now, the reason that this genealogy begins with Abraham is because he was chosen by God to receive a unique covenant from the Lord. It's the only one of its kind. Out of all the people on the earth, God chose to reveal himself to this man for unknown reasons and to enter into a unique agreement with him. Now, initially, that sounds as if it's not very fair to the rest of us, right? 
I mean, doesn't God make covenants with the whole human race? Why do everybody else get left out? Well, what I want to do is show you the covenant God made with all of humanity, including us. And then I'm going to contrast it with the covenant that he gave to Abraham. So turn to Genesis 9 for a moment, if you will. Now, again, what does Genesis mean? Beginning, right? Origins. So we're going now to the book of beginnings. And in chapter 9, verse 8, we read, Then God spoke to Noah. Remember, he built the ark. And to his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And Noah, I mean, God is not uh, merely referring here to Noah's three sons, because verse 10 says, And with every living creature that is with you. Verse 11, Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. There's the sign of that particular covenant. So what promise did God make to Noah, and really to all of us? Well, we all know it, right? That he would never again destroy the world with water. That's good news. That's good news for the people over there in the Philippines. So the pictures of the flood. Good news for us and all the floods that we experience. So when you ask, has God made any covenants with the rest of us? The answer to that is yes, you're covered by the first covenant that God made with man after the flood. But following that, God chose to make a unique covenant with this one individual named Abraham. So turn to chapter 12 now of this book of beginnings. And remember, of course, that Genesis is the beginning of everything. Uh, it isn't just the beginning of creation, but it's the beginning of all theological doctrine that we believe. It's the beginning of every covenant. It's the beginning of all things, the book of beginnings. So here we have the beginning of what will later on be traced out in the book of Matthew. Okay? So we're going back to the, the roots of Matthew here. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Abram, who was introduced in the previous chapter, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And here's the first promise God made to this man in this covenant. I will make you a great nation. Now look at verse 3. The last promise he makes in this passage. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God says to this individual, I'm, I'm going to make a single great nation out of you, but my blessing is not exclusively for you and your line because I will bless all of the nations in you. So again, this is a promise to one man, one individual, but it has universal ramifications. The original promise was a blessing to all people through him, so he, that's why, then, he is the first individual named in the genealogy or the origin of Jesus the Messiah. Now, of course, this is the first of eight occurrences where God met with this man and made promises to him. If you go through the eight meetings, you'll find 15 promises that are made. But the one that we are most concerned about this morning is stated 
right here at the beginning. So we are dealing with the fact that if you want to investigate the ancient roots, uh, the pedigree of the person whom God is setting forth to us as having the credentials to be the Lord of all, well, you're not going to find his lineage rooted back in the Europeans or the islanders. You're not going to find his roots in the Australian indigenous or the Africans or the Asians. His roots go back to this single individual. Now, what is interesting is that the same group of promises was passed on to this man's son. However, much of the world is preoccupied with the question of which son? Because there's a rival claim to that promise, right? You remember that Abraham had a son by the handmaid of his wife. What was the handmaid's name? Right, Hagar. Then he had a second son by his wife. What was her name? Right, Sarah, Sarai. Uh, in addition to that, Genesis 25 records he had a number of other sons by concubines. Although it's only the two initial ones, the eldest by Hagar named Ishmael, and then the son by Sarah named Isaac. Those are the two controversial ones. We used to engage a group of Muslims on the street in Blacktown, uh, and things would be quite civil until you started talking to them about the Messiah's origin uh, from Abraham. And of course, they insisted our Bible was corrupted and that the name Ishmael was replaced by Isaac in the copying of the manuscripts. And I remember almost starting a fist fight with these guys uh, over the fact that Christians had changed the story of Abraham when he took uh, his son to sacrifice him at God's command. Well, the son in question was Ishmael in their minds. And I kept saying, well, no, it's Isaac. And, and we, were, we were about to start a fight. And uh, I was going to get arrested <laughs> in the street. But Well, for centuries, it started fights, started wars. They're still going on as a result. But do you know who was the first person to raise the question about Isaac or Ishmael? Turn to Genesis 17. I want to show you this. God comes to Abraham in verse 15. He promises him that his wife, Sarah, is going to have a son. Well, at this point, Abraham laughs, and you would too. Uh, verse 17, the guy's a century old. His wife is 90 years old. And just like you, we couldn't believe parents that age could still bear children. I mean, that would take a miracle. So when God promised him a son, Abraham's response, verse 18, was this. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Now, he's not praying that Ishmael might stay alive as if his life is in danger somehow. But he's praying, oh, God, that you might bless Ishmael. I mean, you're talking about me having another son. It's okay, Lord. I've got a son. His name is Ishmael. And oh, that Ishmael might live before you as my heir. The next words are crucial. Verse 19, then God said no. See that? So who is the first person to raise the question of whether Ishmael should inherit the promises given to Abraham? It was Abraham himself. It was his dad. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God's answer to that was no. But now, verse 20, and as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him. I will make him fruitful. 
will multiply him exceedingly. And the guy's been really fruitful because it says he shall beget 12 princes. And I will make him a great nation. However, verse 21, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac who had not yet been conceived. Uh, But God names him there and he says the covenant goes to Isaac. So when anybody says which of Abraham's two sons was given the promise, the answer clearly in Scripture is not Ishmael. It's Isaac. Now how many sons did Isaac have? Two. What was the name of the eldest? Esau. The name of the youngest, of course, was Jacob. Uh, Of course, according to the law of that period, it should have been uh, Esau who inherited the blessing from Abraham, now passed on to Isaac. But of course, you know the story. You know that that was overruled by God. In Genesis 25, 23, he communicated, no, it's going to be the younger son who's going to have precedence over the elder. And in the process of time, that's exactly what took place. I won't go through the story. Uh, God passed on the promises to Jacob. Well, how many sons did Jacob have? Twelve. Thank you, Lulu. Uh, And I want you to turn now to Genesis 49, where Jacob passes on the Abrahamic blessings to all of those boys. Now, imagine having to deal those things out. I mean, it's difficult enough for most of us when it comes to making out a will. Uh, You've got to decide who gets what, and you've got two kids three kids. Imagine if there were 12 possibilities and they're all boys. There are going to be some fights about this, right? Now, of course, you remember that the customs in that day dictated that which son would, would inherit the Abrahamic blessing? The eldest, right? But there's a problem with him. Look at verse 3. Reuben, you are my firstborn. However, verse 4 you are, you are unstable as water. He didn't have any control over his spirit. So you shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed and then you defiled it. And earlier in Genesis, we're told that Reuben took one of his father's concubines for himself. So Jacob dismisses him. He's disqualified. Well, who's next? Simeon or Levi. Look at verse 5. Simeon and, and Levi are actually uh, two of a type. That's what it means uh, when it says brothers. I mean, all 12 were brothers. But what he means here is you two guys are birds of a feather. You flock together. And it's because of what they did in verses 6 and 7, which is also found in Genesis. These guys went out and exterminated all the men of a whole city. They committed genocide, as it were. So they were cruel. They don't get the promises either. Then it moves down to the fourth son. He's named in verse 8. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Look at that. Your father's sons, all your brothers, they're going to bow down to you. Judah, he says, is a lion's whelp. Verse 10. The scepter. Who holds a scepter? The king. And the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver, and that can also be translated as ruler's staff, which is a better translation, that's the ESV, or a commander even, nor will a ruler's staff depart from between his feet until 
Shiloh comes. The Hebrew word Shiloh refers to one whose right it is. So Judah will hold the scepter. He will do so until the one whose real right it is, whose right it is to have that scepter, until he comes. And look at the last line. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. So out of Jacob's 12 sons, which son will inherit the blessings given to Abraham? It'll go from Abraham, not to Ishmael, but to Isaac. Of Isaac's two sons, not to Esau, but to Jacob. Of Jacob's 12 sons, not to Reuben, not to Simeon, not to Levi, to the fourth son, Judah, who will get it. And out of his line will come him to whose right that scepter belongs. And to that one is going to be the obedience of the people. Now, this is where we have some new information, of course, that is added to the initial Abrahamic covenant. I mean, not until now have we seen this promise about somebody holding a scepter. I mean, yes, you're going to be a great nation. Yes, you're going to be a great name. Yes, and you all the families of the earth will be blessed. But now one of Abraham's descendants is actually going to rule over all the others. And one day, one of his descendants, whose right it is to have that scepter permanently, will be the one that all the peoples of the earth will obey. As if somebody is Lord. As if somebody is Master as if somebody has rightful authority over all. To that one whose right the scepter is, all the peoples are going to gather to obey. This is an unbelievable statement. Now I want to pause for a moment. Here are the ancient roots of a claim to universal rights. Rights that demand the obedience of all people. Found in the book of beginnings. The book, the book of Genesis. So I just want to say that if you ever find yourself questioning the claims of Jesus the Messiah, and that's something that lost people do, yes, of course, but something Christians also do. I mean, after knowing the Lord for years, I think some of you know what it's like to be assaulted with doubt in your Christian life. So if you find yourself in that position, keep in mind that what you have in Genesis is an historical record that existed centuries before the birth of Jesus, the Messiah. In other words, you're not talking here about a book that was written after his conception and somebody somehow fabricated what it says to match the events of his life and kind of make it look like hey, this is prophecy. When it's not really, it's not really that way. No, in fact... Uh, you know, we have, we have copies of this book that were penned saying these things long before his birth. We have historical archaeological proof. Uh, if you've ever gone to Israel, and some of you did, and you went to Qumran, you remember that uh, it sits on the side of the Dead Sea. Uh, this is a community that was uh, a scribal community. The whole community uh, was killed by Romans. Uh, they, they, total genocide, about 70 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, they've been in existence for a couple of centuries before that. 
uh, but then they were just kind of wiped out in one fell swoop. 1,200 graves were found at that site. 1,200. Uh, only six were women. Four were children. Uh, the rest were men because they were ancient scribes. Now, in 1947, some of you know that in one of those caves, they discovered clay jars which contained ancient Hebrew writings. It turned out that there were 11 caves in that immediate area where the scribal community had secreted away their writings, probably when they knew that the Romans were coming to take them all out. They, they, that was very sacred to them to, to save their work and what they had done. Now, those scrolls, of course, have become known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. But what's remarkable is that in those caves, they found 15 copies of Genesis. They also found a commentary that they wrote on Genesis. And I want to read you the comments that they made on Genesis 49.10. Look at the verse. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. Now, here's the commentary on that verse. This is written many, many years before the birth of Jesus Christ. Okay? You haven't been born yet. It says the staff, again, with a better translation than lawgiver, the staff, the ruler's staff, is the covenant of kingship. So right away they recognize it's a verse referring to a king. The staff is the covenant of kingship the thousands of Israel are the feet. See that? So again, the verse reads, the ruler's staff will not depart from between his feet. They're commenting on the fact that the feet of Judah is basically a metaphorical reference to all of the thousands in Israel from that time on. So the staff, the promise of kingship, the thousands of Israel, that's the feet. And listen to this, until the coming of the Messiah of righteousness. So who did they think Shiloh referred to? The Messiah. Shiloh is the Messiah. Now I'm calling that to your attention just to make this point. A few moments ago when I pointed out to you that this is a messianic text, a text that points ahead to a ruler who will reign over all the people, I want you to know that's not just a New Testament Christian interpretation. It's not because I'm trying to read something into it. No, that interpretation was understood by Jews who lived at least a century or two before Jesus was even born. They were waiting for Shiloh to come, the Messiah, who would claim the scepter revealed in this text. Now, unfortunately, there are many modern Jews today who have lost all concept that the Messiah is going to be an individual. Uh, most Reformed Jews... They would say it's not a person, but the Messiah is, is uh, kind of a metaphor for a future uh, time of blessing and prosperity that's going to come to the nation of Israel. Orthodox Jews would mostly disagree with that, but Reformed Jews take the view that, you know, it's been thousands of years, no Messianic individual has come on the scene, of course Jesus doesn't count, so it must be a future era when Israel will finally have blessing and prosperity. But the fact is, that wasn't the views of the Jews in the centuries before Christ. Neither was it the view of the first century Jews. And I want to show you that very quickly in Matthew 22. 
We looked at this passage a couple of weeks ago when the Lord was uh, questioning the Pharisees. It's right at the end of his earthly ministry. In verse 42, you remember that Jesus asked these very religious conservative leaders a question. And the question was simply this, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And by the way, Matthew is the only gospel that gives an answer. Uh, Mark and Luke record the same incident. They don't give the answer. Only Matthew does. And these men replied, he is the son of David. So that tells us that not only did the Qumran community, uh, we call them the Essenes, the ancient scribes, not only did they indicate their belief in looking for an individual to take that scepter, but in the New Testament, that was the belief held by first century Jews as well. They believed it was the son of David, right? I mean, the Pharisees thought that. They knew that his lineage would go right back to Abraham through David. He's the son of David. So were they right? Let's go back to Matthew 1. Do you remember the introductory verse in the record of his ancestral origin? In verse 1, right there, you have the record of the origin of Jesus the Messiah. The first name, notice this, the first name in the introductory statements, not Abraham. Who is it? It's David. He's the son of David, the son of Abraham. So the Bible itself addresses the expectation of those ancient scribes and those first century Jews. Here it's an individual. It's not a future era of prosperity. It's a flesh and blood individual who claims to be the Messiah, who claims to have the rights that were promised to Judah, the ancient son of Jacob, who would hold that scepter in his hand. So what we have in verse 2 so far are the ancient claims that this is an individual from Abraham who begot Isaac, Isaac who begot Jacob, Jacob who begot Judah and his brothers, although he chose Judah. But in verse 3, the line now goes from Judah to Perez and Zerah by Tamar and Hezron and Ram and Amminadab and Nashon and Salmon and Boaz and Obed and Jesse and finally Jesse begot David. Now, you have nine names between Judah and David. And the fact is, we hardly know anything about most of those people. In fact, if you open up a Bible dictionary, they don't even get a mention. Because there really is nothing to say about them. I mean, they could have said they're in the genealogy of the Messiah, but they don't even say that. Nevertheless, they are the physical links between David and Judah that establish the fact that there was a line from Abraham all the way down through to David the king. They're connected. But what I think is most significant in that section, and I want to point this out, is the inclusion of three women. Ladies, you really should note these women. In verse 3, the first one is who? Tamar. Second one in verse 5, when Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. The third woman is Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Let's consider them for just a moment. Now, Tamar was a Canaanite. She was not a descendant of Abraham as far as we know. So how did Judah conceive a son by her? Well, you know, there's a whole chapter in the Bible that tells this story. 
Sometimes we read the Bible and we wonder why God made certain choices about what information he included. When you first come to Genesis 38, you've got so many verses that are given to describing a very unusual and immoral story. So why did God put that in the Bible? Why do we need to know that? Well, there is a reason. In Genesis 38, we are told that Judah had a wife and he had three sons by that woman. His oldest son married this woman, Tamar. But it says the boy was evil, so God killed him. Well, according to the custom of the day, his next brother was meant to raise up an heir to his older brother through the older brother's wife. In other words, uh, the second brother also married Tamar. He was supposed to produce a son by her who would inherit his older brother's estate. But you may recall that the second son refused to do his duty. He did not want to produce an heir for his brother, so God killed him as well. And although I'd love to know why he didn't, we're not told. Maybe they were just sibling rivalry. Who knows? Well, now Tamar wants to marry the third son. You remember the three sons? And Judah said, no way. I've lost two sons to this woman already because of this woman. I'm not going to risk my third marrying her. But for some reason, he, couldn't, he just couldn't bring himself to tell her, so he deceived her. He said, okay, look, I'll tell you what. When he grows up, I'll give him to you. But the guy grew up, he lived, he died, never happened. So Tamar realizes now, well, she's not going to have him. She's not going to have any other husband, no son, no heir to carry on the line. She's been totally cut off. So she disguised herself as a prostitute. And she sat along the road where Judah was going to pass by. And Judah, who betrays himself at this point to be an immoral man, thinks that she's a real prostitute. And he accepts her services, and she conceives through him. But in the darkness, he doesn't realize who it really is. Well, you remember that he couldn't pay for his, her services at the time, so she asked him to give her a pledge of payment, uh, you know, some of his personal items. And he could claim them back when he returned with the payment. So he goes home, he gets the payment, which I think was a goat or a sheep. And he went to claim back his stuff and make the payment. She's gone. He's like, oh, okay, don't have to pay. Go home. Right. Nine months pass. She comes to term. Word gets back to him, hey, your daughter-in-law's pregnant. Well, of course, Judah sees his way out of any obligation that he has to his daughter-in-law. Right? She's played the harlot, he says. She deserved to be burned, he says. So he sends people to do it. And this is where the woman pulls out her ace. Right? She takes his personal effects out of hiding. And she says to the people who came, all right, you got me. I'm expecting by the man who owns these things. And of course, they belong to Judah. And when Judah hears about that, you can just see his face turns red. He's caught, and he makes a statement. He says, she has been more righteous than I have, which is a pretty good response given the circumstances. Well, that is the horrible story behind the conception of Perez and Zerah in verse 3 by that woman. Here's a Canaanite woman who deceived Judah, disguised herself as a prostitute, 
conceives those boys incestuously, and yet they're part of the messianic line. Go figure. Now, what do we know about the second woman in the list, Rahab? Well, did you know that every other time in the Bible when Rahab is mentioned, either Old Testament or New Testament, there are two words that always follow her name. What are they? Rahab the harlot. So here's a woman who's not just playing the harlot. She really is one. She's also a Canaanite. And she was only preserved from destruction because she had her wits about her when the two spies came to Jericho. What about the third woman in the list? Verse 5. Well, now, this is not a notable sinner. But by nationality, she was a Moabite. And unbelievably, the Moabite race was the result of an incestuous relationship between Lot, Abraham's nephew, and his oldest daughter. So her roots go back to something just terribly wicked. So why in the world would a sovereign, all-powerful God include the names of these women in his list? I mean, certainly he could have chosen women who had clean pedigrees. Women who were born with silver spoons in their mouths. I mean, those are the kinds of people you like showing up in your genealogy. Those are the ones you like to tell the stories about. But everybody hides the black sheep. Just think Prince Andrew. You know, just think Prince Harry. I mean, the royal family would like to disown those guys, right? But they can't. So why would God deliberately include these three women on this list and hold them up for all the world to see? Well, on the one hand, it really is because this is part of the main theme, right? I mean, what qualifies Jesus of Nazareth to be the Lord of every individual? Well, it certainly has to do with the promises of the Abrahamic covenant and the fact that they were passed down to Isaac and to Jacob and to Judah. It's got all these links. Those women form part of that linkage, so they need to be included. We need to know that, right? But on the other hand, there is also this aspect, and I think it's a little more subtle, but it's clearly the fact that this promised individual wants to have people in his own family tree who have deeply sinned. There are, there are wicked sinners who have attached themselves to God's people. There are people of other nations, pagan nations, Canaanites, Moabites, who came to be blessed in Abraham's line and form part of that family tree. And what a tremendous lesson we have here. When you look at these people, when you read about their past, and then you see that, hey, they're also included in this most prestigious of genealogies, and they've been here for all of these years for people to read in the first gospel. We've had people come to this church, people who have been and are members of this church today, and without revealing any names or circumstances, I can tell you they've had some really sordid backgrounds. Uh, some of these people have conceived children out of wedlock. Some of them have had multiple wives and husbands for all the wrong reasons. Some of them have suffered all kinds of abuse as children. Some were brought up as servants, even slaves. Some were convicted criminals, sex offenders. Uh, we've had people uh, guilty of some of the worst things, and, and, and they're still here. 
They've come here. They, they, they are part of the spiritual lineage of Abraham, as Paul talks about in Galatians. Why is that so? Why does God allow that? Why don't he just fill the church with really wonderfully silver spoon people? Well, it's the grace and forgiveness of this person who is the Lord. Not just of, 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 of good people, but of all people who come to him. In fact, you know, he teaches us that none of us are good, that he alone is good, but that, that, that his goodness can become our goodness by substitution, whereby he says, I'll tell you what, I'll take all of your sin for myself. You can claim all of my perfections. And that is why no one else is qualified to be the Lord of all, because none of us are good. None of us will ever be good enough on our own. So even though we may have never been caught in a terribly sinful situation, we've never fallen to the worst of temptations by God's grace. The scripture teaches that we are all entirely capable of that. And in fact, we have sinned grievously against the holy God. If not in act, certainly in thought, certainly in attitude, so that no person in human history is capable or has the potential to claim everybody else's obedience. I mean, you would have to be a sinless, flawless person to do that. And only the Lord Jesus Christ can make that claim. So what a blessedness to find out that he was willing to claim as his own people like Rahab the harlot. Children of incestuous unions like Perez. People whose lineage goes back to Lot and his oldest daughter. This person was willing to claim those people in his line and he will surely claim you. I mean, man, you with, with, with your checkered family history. You with all of your worst sins draped around you. You as a filthy, shame-ridden, guilty sinner. Friends, the Lord Jesus Christ is not merely the Savior of the Jew, but the Savior of all who will come to him now in faith. And one day the Savior and Master of all the nations in fulfillment of that ancient promise that is made to Abraham. He will claim them as his own and he has a right to their obedience as the Lord of all. Aren't you glad that you're one of his people? Let's pray together.